Okay, I'd like I'd like to begin this morning by asking a few of you a simple question. And I promise you this question is not a trick. There's no right answer. The question is simply, what do you do? What do you do? So I'm going to ask a few people. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Shane. Shane, what do you do? He farms. Okay. Uh, I see. Uh, so what Shane does not do is ballet. And he does not spy on us for the rival Catholics down the block. And he does not collect rare and unusual toothbrushes from around the world. Good to know. That's, uh, that's Shane. How about... Um, Lois. Lois, what do you do? Nothing. Okay, she does. Okay, okay. Okay, so how do you spend your days? What do you do in your day? That's really lovely. So, yeah, sleep in a little, have breakfast with your husband, go for walks, kick the cat, okay? <laughs> oh, sorry, kick the cat out. Big difference. So, so thank you for sharing that. So we know that Lois is not the inventor of the poutine. She is not a member of a Croatian women's rugby team. She is not a money launderer for Japanese street gangs, right? Okay. Glad to, we got that straightened out. And finally, um, Dale. Dale, what do you do? Electrician. Okay, so you're not a world-renowned kangaroo groomer. And you're not a best-selling author of medieval romance novels? And, oh, well, maybe he is. Well, that's a bit of a relief. Um, I had on here, not a recruiter for ISIS, but that's a little harsh. Plus, I don't know, Dale. But as each of these brave volunteers, well, they're not really, I told them to do it. As each of them can tell you, it's kind of weird to identify yourself by what you don't do rather than what you do. As soon as I said, um, Shane, what did I say of Shane? Doesn't do ballet. As soon as I said, Shane doesn't do ballet, you probably all pictured him in a tutu, right? Um, as soon as I said, Lois doesn't play for an international rugby team, you all thought, but with biceps like that, I could see it happening. And as soon as I said, Dale uh, <laughs> doesn't uh, author medieval romance novels, you thought, Actually, I think you'd be pretty good at that, <laughs> romantic guy like that. Um, the truth is, the more we choose to identify ourselves with what we insist we don't do, the more we end up getting wrapped up in that thing anyways. If I go around the GWA, that's the Greater Westlock area, of course. If I go around the Greater Westlock area ringing a bell and wearing a sandwich board that says, I've never eaten a Donair and I think Donairs are from Satan and loudly proclaim into a bullhorn the dangers of wrapping lettuce and, and beef in a pita shell, handing out anti-donaire pamphlets to everyone who happens by, well, then I can guarantee a few things. First of all, people will not only question my sanity, they'll question the truthfulness of my statement. Only somebody who's invested in, in donaires would be this anti-donaire. So there's some kind of relationship there that you're not making clear. Secondly, sales of donaires would triple at Ramsey's in Westlock. And every time you saw Donaires on the menu, you would think of me and my passionate anti-Donair leanings. I would become directly associated with the very thing that I hate and rally against, and I'd likely boost support for it in the meantime. I'd make you all think of Donaires. You're thinking of it right now, and now you all want a Donair. For the record, there's there's nothing like a, a really well-done Donaire. I'm actually pro-Donair. I am not anti-Donair. I think they're delicious. 
But it simply doesn't make any sense to make yourself known for what you don't do. Dale introduces himself. He doesn't say, hi, I'm Dale, and I don't write romance novels. That wouldn't make any sense. It muddies up your own sense of identity, and it obscures the thing that you do value and the things that you do participate in, if you did that. It makes much more sense to be known for what you do rather than what you don't do. It's also far more compelling for people. As as silly as a lot of this sounds, it's actually an important lesson that the church needs to hear. Far too often, the Church of the West gets identified by what it avoids or condemns rather than what it actively promotes and exemplifies. What's the thing they used to say several decades ago? I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. I've heard Sharon um, Williams say that before. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with boys who do. Well, if that's the case, what kind of girl are you looking to date? Not someone who's addicted to substances, apparently. So what, a corpse? A seven-year-old girl? Because they're not addicted to substances. They, they would qualify. What are you looking for in a potential bride? That's a better question. What are you looking for, not what are you against? But too often, the church promotes what it doesn't do and forgets to demonstrate the core identities that make us the body of Christ. It's like the world looks at us and asks us, so what makes you so special anyway, church? And we respond by shouting, well, we don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Or probably more accurately, we hate science and abortion and gays. You better change your evil ways. I think that's probably more accurately what we say to our culture. When we become identified with what we dislike or distrust or disapprove of, then the consequences are A, we become directly associated with with condemnation towards the things that we don't do. And B, we lose focus on what we are actually supposed to be doing. Neither of those things, by the way, bring much glory to Christ. If we're known for what we condemn, was Jesus known for what he condemned? If you're a Pharisee, you might say yes. But if you're any other kind of person, the answer is no. You're known for for who you love and who you accept. If we are so focused on what we don't do, will we have energy left over for what we are supposed to do? It'll be hard. Now, of course, that's not to say Christians shouldn't have a voice to stand up for what we believe in. Those things that I just said, if you believe passionately about those things, then you should let your voice be heard, especially in a free society. It doesn't mean we don't have a moral standard that is separate from the world. In fact, in verse 9, which we'll look at whenever it is I preach next, Paul kind of emphasizes our, our special moral code as a bunch of Christians. It's, it's just that we shouldn't be known primarily for what we don't do. That doesn't make any sense. We are the salt of the world, which means we have our own flavor. It would sound idiotic of, of me if somebody asked, hey, how are those fries? And I said, well, they're, they're not too bitter and they're not too sweet. Well, that doesn't describe the fries. It just says what the, it would make much more sense if I said, these fries are delicious, salty goodness as my arteries slowly squeeze shut. That would make much more sense if I described them for what they are. Salt has a flavor and we, the church, the salt of the earth, have a flavor as well. That flavor doesn't come out in what we avoid or condemn. That flavor comes out when we follow our master chef's recipe, which is scripture. It comes out when we allow him to season us to his tastes and not our own tastes. And it comes out when we do what we are supposed to do and live as we're supposed to live. That's when we get salty. Actually, salty means something different in our culture. It means like rude and 
and angry. So it's not that we're getting, okay. As Paul continues to wrap up his friendship letter to the Philippians, he throws in a whole bunch of closing instructions. Not things for the Philippians to avoid, rather things for the Philippians to strive towards. They are reminders of who they are as faithful followers of Jesus. They come in rapid staccato form, bang, 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 bang. Brief arguments, familiar language, short sentences. It's like Paul fires a machine gun instead of a well-placed bow and arrow. With so many instructions all at once, it's impossible, frankly, for all of them to hit a square in the heart. But even though it's machine gun-like, each bullet has power and authority, and for sure, one of them will hit you. Hopefully a few of them. Because here in Philippians 4, 4 4-7, are some of the basics that we as Christians are supposed to do. What we are supposed to identify with. Who we are supposed to be. So let's read that now. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I was going to include verses 8 to 9, but the sermon got too long, so we'll do that another time. But there's two distinct paragraphs here as Paul does this closing argument. There's this one we just read, and there's the one we'll look at next. They say similar things. We'll focus on the first one this Sunday. The first paragraph gets its vocabulary from Jewish scripture, from Jewish wisdom, particularly the Psalms. We'll talk about that later. The second paragraph gets its vocabulary from a very different source. It actually gets it from the wisdom of the prevailing culture of the day. We'll look at that next time I preach. But it's interesting that although both paragraphs are distinct, they both end in exactly the same way. They end on a note of peace. Peace is the consequence, positive consequence, and the reward for those who do the things they're supposed to do. And again, we'll look at that in a little while as well. But let's examine this first paragraph that we just read, verses 4 to 7. In it, Paul gives three positive commands, as in things we are supposed to do. Rejoice, let your gentleness be evident, and present your requests to God. Those are things we're supposed to do. They are positive commands. You'll notice there's only one negative command, and that is do not be anxious. But it's offered up only to emphasize the positive command to follow. It's a contrast. He doesn't leave the don't command on its own. He gives it its proper partner. He gives it a do command. So the don't is only in there to show what the world, what we tend to be like, so that he can emphasize how we're supposed to be like. The language of the passage is deeply rooted in the Psalms. As I mentioned, the threefold expression of Jewish piety, piety is proper um, proper behavior, proper... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me. Piety is basically just being proper before God. It's, it's religiosity in a sense. And the threefold expression of Jewish piety is rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. I ripped this next slide directly out of one of my commentaries, so I get no credit for it. But um, the author of that commentary wrote, According to the Psalms, the righteous rejoice in the Lord, which is Psalm 6410 and 9712. The righteous rejoice in the Lord as they come before him with thanksgiving, which is Psalm 95.2 and Psalm 104, to pray in his sanctuary, which is Psalm 64 and 84. In other words, those are the things that Jewish people do. That's what they were supposed to do in order to experience the presence of God. The righteous rejoice in the Lord as they come before him with thanksgiving to pray in his sanctuary. That's what good Jewish piety looked like. And we see all of those things here. They didn't march up to his temple 
and declare, you'll notice, dear creator, that we're not murdering one another at the moment and we haven't worshipped Baal in like four days, so we're doing okay. They don't go to God to say all the things they don't do or aren't currently doing. They go to God to do something, to actively participate in this worship, which is prayer, thanksgiving, and rejoicing. They don't identify with they don't identify themselves with what they are not. They don't highlight what they're not doing. Instead, they identify with who they are, which leads them to take the focus off themselves and put the focus on where it really belongs in his presence, and that's himself. They are the children of their father God. They are beloved. They are provided for. They are cared for. They are gifted with grace and forgiveness and acceptance and adoption. That's who they are. And as they approach their God, knowing who they are, it leads them to do something. And that something is rejoice, pray in his presence, give thanks to him. If those are all true of their identity as they march up towards the temple, that's what they focus on. Then ultimately what they focus on is God himself because they return thanks to him. They pray to him knowing he will answer them. They rejoice in his presence. And so this that's Jewish piety. It's also very Christian as well. That's the first thing that Christians do. They lessen themselves. There's a certain amount of humility to being thankful, a certain amount of hum- humility to rejoicing, to praying to somebody who's bigger than you. That's an emptying of yourself, an acknowledgement of the bigness of someone else. So that's the first thing Christians do. They lessen themselves in order to bring God the glory that he deserves which is what you do when you rejoice and pray and give thanks. You give him the glory. All of these things in verses 4 to 7 are things we do in response to our proper understanding of who we are in God's eyes. We are his cherished children. We receive his gracious gifts with gratitude. That's who we are. It's our identity. Paul begins this passage by telling us to rejoice, and then he cutely emphasizes it one more time. Again, I say rejoice to really drive the point home. Joy has been infused into every nook and cranny of this letter, more than any other letter in all of the Bible. We see joy in Philippians, and it's here in the conclusion as well. Joy is a major marker of what makes us different from the world. Too often we mistakenly respond to righteousness and sanctification, which again is the process of being made more and more like Jesus. Too often we mistakenly respond to righteousness and sanctification with dour seriousness, and, and stern determination. You think of what what a stereotypical church face looks like on like, you think of somebody from the 50s all done up in their suit and they're very, this is my church face and I'm very serious. And it doesn't look very joyful at all. Too often we mistake solemn for mature. One of the surest markers of a mature Christian life enveloped in the presence of God isn't humorless piety, it's joyful celebration. So we shouldn't be marked by our seriousness. There's time to be serious, obviously. But if it's a childlike faith, what do children do better than adults? Rejoice. Enjoy themselves. Have joy. Children know joy better than we do. And if we're supposed to be like kids, which we read today in Matthew 19, then maybe we should be more joyful. If your father... Like, if your earthly dad gave you the best gift, you, you, you've been asking for this gift for months, and your dad finally gives it to you, would you respond with a very serious, thank you, Father? Or would you jump up and down and hug him and, and celebrate? Well, you've been given the best gift you could ever ask for through Jesus, 
So shouldn't we be filled with a childlike joyfulness? Shouldn't we be rejoicing together more frequently? I would think so. Joy is therefore the first consequence and reward of a life lived in the presence of God. Rejoicing is the first thing that we do. It's the thing that we should be known for. One of the things that we should be known for. The next thing we do or identity that we take on is one of gentleness, which is somewhat of a surprising word. Gentleness isn't something that our our culture values at all. We prefer commanding or sarcastic or vicious defenses of self. We're not big on gentleness in our society. But the Holy Spirit makes us more gentle. And the Greek word translated gentle has connotations of an authoritative person choosing meekness and patient forbearance rather than retaliation or show of force. So the Greek word translated gentle should give us the image of a father choosing to hug his misbehaving child rather than spank them. It's the image of a boss offering a struggling employee more training rather than a pink slip and firing them. It's the image of Christ declaring, Father, forgive them from the cross rather than Father, destroy them. That's what is meant by gentleness here. It's the cheek-turning, cloak-sharing, extra-mile-marching, 70 times 7 forgiving life that our Lord calls us into. It's the life that reflects to the world how God treats us, his wayward children. That's what gentleness means in this context. That's, that's what verse 5 calls us to make evident to all. This, this gentleness sort of is an authority figure who has patience with you and grace with you, is gentle and kind to you. That's what that word means. That's what we're supposed to reflect back to the world around us. Though we are wayward, God is gentle. And though you, world, are wayward, we will be gentle to you. Our gentleness will be evident to all. Next, we have the negative command, the only do not in the passage, which sets up the power of the positive command to present our requests to God. In one sense, this is perhaps the the biggest thing that we have to offer to the world around us, this, do not be anxious. Because we are all anxious. As a society, we are a very anxious society. We are bombarded with news that fills us with fear and advertisements that fill us with self-loathing and consumerism that fills us with envy and politics that fill us with anger and injustices that fill us with dread and a general purposelessness that fills us with longing. And all of that is just from eight minutes of scrolling through Facebook. You'll get that as soon as you log on to social media. There's so much about our world that causes us to worry and to be anxious that it can be crippling and overwhelming even for us as Christians. Which is where Jesus points to the flowers, and this is Matthew 6, you can read it while I'm speaking because I'm just basically going to quote it. It's where Jesus points to the flowers and says, look how beautifully they are clothed. And yet you have more worth to your father than they do. He points to the sparrows and he says, your father in heaven feeds these little guys and you're worth more than a thousand sparrows to him. You need not worry about where your food or your clothes come from. If he takes care of lilies, if he takes care of sparrows, he'll take care of you. You need not worry about where your food or clothes come from. And to extend that, you need not worry about your bank account or if you'll be the next victim of gun violence, which is what media wants to tell you you will be, or that your waistline is growing, or that the United Conservative Party is in power, or that the Trudeau liberals are in power. Or that your coworker is a jerk to you. Or that mortgage payments are due. Or that your kids make mistakes in life. Or that you make mistakes in life. Or that life can be cruel and one day you'll die. You need not worry about any of those things. You can be mindful of them. In fact, you should be mindful of them. There's a sense of healthiness to all of those things that we should be mindful of. 
each one of those things may be more or less of a reality to you today. Or sometimes worse to someone you care about. This might be something you're wrestling with. Whatever the thing is you're wrestling with giving you anxiety. Whatever the thing is your loved ones are wrestling with giving them and you anxiety. anxiety. Whatever it is, be mindful of them. But worrying about them won't help anything. In fact, it'll only make it worse. Jesus says, who of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to your life? I kind of hate this lesson because so many people can't control their anxiety. They, they, it's out of their control. And sometimes lessons like this just make them feel more ashamed. That's not what Jesus is intending to do. That's not what I am intending to do. I just want to highlight the fact that we need not worry. Why? Well, not because those fears and envies and dreads and longings aren't real. Whatever you are wrestling with, whatever you're anxious and worried about, that's real. Unless you're worried about like dragons burning your house down. That's not real. Unless you're worried about, I don't know, being the victim of racism as a white person in Canada. That's not real. There's things we absolutely don't need to worry about. There's things we should advocate for but not be worried about. But there are things that are real that we should be mindful of. But we don't need to worry about them. Why? Because our dad is in control. Our dad's got this. He knows all about those worries. Whatever you're worried about, he knows about that worry. As in, he faced those worries himself through Jesus. Or, probably more often than not, he never faced those worries because he focused on something higher instead. So Jesus never worried about a mortgage. Because he had no home. He wandered around like a pilgrim. So that's not a worry he ever presented to himself. But he did face the worries of Jesus. As Jesus did face the worries of purpose. He worried about what his purpose was. The worries of persecution and the worries of pain. He faced the worries of rejection and abandonment. He faced the worries of a torturous death and a misunderstood life. He faced bigger worries than we'll ever face. And yet... He wasn't worried. Those are things that would crush us. The stress of them, the anxiety of them would crush us. Think of Jesus praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood, knowing he's going to die the next morning. That's an anxiety that I'll never understand, hopefully, as far as I know. Jesus faced bigger worries than we'll ever face, and yet he wasn't worried. Why? Because he knew his father was in control. He trusted his father. He rested, and he prayed, and he did not worry. And that's what followers of Jesus do too. They take their worries to God, not to forget about them, but to recontextualize them, to put them in their proper place, to have their weight lifted off of us as we refocus on our true purposes. We come to the Father God who created us and who loves us and who gives us everything we need and everything we ask for in his name, and we lay our anxieties down at his crucified feet, and he simply says, trust me. Follow me, which is trust me. And that's not a metaphor. That's not an abstract image of how this works. We literally, through prayer and petition, present those worries to God, and he literally calls us to trust him. And a funny thing happens when we do trust him. A funny thing happens when we rest in him and refocus on him and seek his kingdom first rather than our own selfish pursuits. When we bring our worries to the cross, they get crucified, just like he did. When we trust him, the things that we are anxious about are seen in a new light. It's not that they go away. It's not like your impending 
human fatality will go away just because you're not worried about it. That's ignorance. That's the opposite of what I'm talking about. But your impending human fatality takes on a new perspective when viewed through the lens of the cross. Whatever it is that you're worried about, whatever it is I'm worried about, there's all kinds of things that I worry about. Number one on that list is my daughters turning out to be leaders in the church, to be faithful followers of Jesus. There's nothing that I worry about more than that. Ultimately, I have only very little say in what happens there. Ultimately, that is completely in God's hands. And my God loves my daughters more than I do. So why am I worried? Just do the best I can. It's not that our anxiety, the things we're anxious about go away. It's that we see them in a new way when we see them with the eyes of Jesus, which is what we're called to do. So I'll be honest, I'm not great at prayer. This says to pray, I'm not great at prayer. I'm not consistent and I'm not particularly full of faith when I pray. But I know that on those occasions when I do pray for patience with my daughters or for help navigating a tricky relationship at work or wherever, or for words to say when someone's hurting, those times when I do pray, when I actually do the thing that followers of Jesus are called to do and present my worries to him with a heart of thankfulness and humility, when I actually do that, I become far less stressed out about them and far more successful at them, and and God is far more glorified through them than if I attempted to do it on my own. Those Rare occasions when I give my head a shake and actually do what I'm told to do, as in present my worries to God, it's been great. It's been incredibly helpful. It doesn't mean there's not still things that I worry about, but it means I can tackle them. I can do it with his help. And So to summarize that, what do Christians do? Well, they rest. They do rest. They do trust. They do thankfulness. They do prayers and petitions with an eye on the kingdom of God rather than themselves. That's what they do. That's what we do. And finally, the paragraph concludes with a promise. Peace will guard our hearts and minds like a sentry tower that refuses to permit access to that which is unwanted, while at the same time protecting that which is already inside of us. Peace does that. When we are at peace, garbage can't get in because we're at peace. And when we're at peace, things that the Holy Spirit has done in us get preserved because we're at peace. It's a piece that contrasts the the anxiety that Paul's already mentioned. It's a piece that's connected to the contentment that Paul will speak of in a couple paragraphs. So we'll look at that a few weeks down the road. It's a piece that transcends our understanding. It says here, precisely because our understanding is so small and limited and self-centered. Thank goodness it transcends my understanding because my understanding is woefully short. So his piece transcends that. Because mine is so small and self-centered. Paul doesn't command us to have peace. He he commands us to rejoice. He commands us to pray. He commands us to be thankful. But he doesn't command us to be at peace. Because this kind of peace is a gift. I would argue joy is, is a gift as well. It's the working of the Holy Spirit in us. But peace is a gift. It, it's a result of doing what we're called to do. It's the result of being joyful and thankful and prayerful. And it comes from a very specific source, the Holy Spirit. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, you may have noticed that I skipped over one little sentence here in, in verse, what is it? I don't know. Verse 5. It's a little four-word sentence that I haven't talked about yet at all. What is it? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. So speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
The Holy Spirit's job is to be the Lord near to you, intimately, eternally near to you, right inside of you, in fact. So we skipped over that curious little sentence right in the middle of the paragraph, the Lord is near. It it seems to come out of nowhere, uh, that phrase, the Lord is near, and nobody's really sure if it's supposed to go with what comes before or what comes after. So is it before is gentleness? So is it let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near, so you'd best represent him well? Or is it, hey guys, the Lord is near, so you need not worry about anything? Or is it both? Or is it bigger than that? I actually think it's bigger than that. I think the Lord is near actually shapes everything about this paragraph. Remember, what's the context of the church of Philippi and the entire early church throughout the Roman Empire at the time? What is the main shared experience for Christians at the hands of their pagan neighbors? Oh, that is actually a much better answer. Yes, that is their common shared thing. But what what are their neighbors doing to them? What are they facing at the hands of their neighbors? Persecution, suffering and persecution. So, Andrew, you're not wrong. In fact, you're probably more right than me. It is the Holy Spirit. But at the hands of their neighbors, they're facing persecution. And so Paul tells the Philippians over and over in this book, stand firm, endure, finish the race, and so on. Along with unity, the most common theme that crops up in this letter is to faithfully persevere in the face of trials and oppressions. In that context, having the Lord near to you is not a threat as it may have been in the Old Testament. It's not something to be fearful of. Instead, the Lord is near is an encouragement. It's a rallying cry for suffering people. It's a source of hope and motivation for those who may be tempted to abandon their faith because it's too hard. Don't abandon it. The Lord is near. He's near to you. He's near to you individually. He's near to us collectively. The Lord is near. Because the Lord is near to us in the midst of our suffering, we can rejoice in his presence. Because he's near. Because the Lord is near to us in the midst of our suffering, we can be gentle towards our enemies rather than lash out and return their cruelty. Because the Lord is near to us in the midst of our suffering, we need not be anxious about anything, not even our suffering, but can instead present our request to him with thanksgiving and urgency, and he will listen and respond because he is near. And because the Lord is near to us, we are guarded and protected by peace. Peace towards those who would harm us, and peace that gives purpose and power when it feels like Even death is so near to us. We're protected by peace. Remember, Paul is writing to Philippi, a city where the emperor is worshipped like a god because of the strategic kindness that Caesar had shown to them a couple, uh, couple centuries earlier. He made Philippi, which is in Macedonia, far away from Rome. He made Philippi a Roman colony and bestowed upon Philippi citizens the blessing of being Roman citizens, though they don't live in Rome. And Philippi was forever grateful to the emperor for that. So the city of Philippi, the emperor, there's a cultic worship of the emperor in Philippi. The emperor was hailed as Lord and Savior throughout Philippi, which is why those who followed this new crucified Lord and Savior underwent such harsh harsh persecution in the first place. But Paul, undeterred, highlights the beautiful rewards of being a citizen of heaven rather than a citizen of Rome. Sure, the emperor causes rejoicing in Philippi, but it's out of fear, not love. Sure, the emperor offers gentleness, but he's quick to turn to cruelty the moment you step out of line. Sure, the emperor will hear his citizens' petitions, but he's hundreds of miles away from Philippi, and they are of limited concern to him. He doesn't have time to deal with them. Sure, the emperor oversees the Pax Romana, the great peace of Rome, 
but that peace is maintained through bloodshed and cruelty. In other words, everything we do as Christians completely trumps what the world does, what the world at large does. Any good thing the world can offer is merely a pale, empty reflection of what the kingdom produces for us and in us. Joy and gentleness and peace and the chance to put aside our worries and anxieties, wouldn't you say that the world is desperate for those things? That the world has no answer for those things? That the world actively fights against those things? What greater gift can we offer a world of anger and empty pleasure than joy? What greater gift can we offer to a world of cruelty and injustice than gentleness and compassion? What greater gift can we offer to a world of social isolation where keeping up with the Joneses is everything we're supposed to do? What greater gift can we give to an upwardly mobile world than freedom from anxiety? What greater gift can we offer to a world of suffering and bigotry and chaos than peace? What greater gift can we offer to a world of materialism and greed and pride and broken sexuality and hatred and divisiveness and individualism and selfishness and the list goes on and on and on. What greater gift can we offer to that kind of world, a fallen world, than the very presence of our good and gracious God? Where else can people find these true blessings? To whom else would they turn? To Caesar? To Mammon? To themselves? Because that's where they turn. They turn to worldly powers. They turn to the idol of wealth. They turn to themselves. And I do this too. Where else can we find these true blessings if it's not those places? Well, they can only find joy and peace and gentleness and freedom from worry in our Lord who is near to us, which means they can only find them in us as his ambassadors. So that is what we do. That is what we ought to be known for. We do the things that bring light to the world. We do the things that taste like the kingdom, the things that bring glory to the king. And verses 4 to 7, this joy peace, uh, freedom from anxiety, uh, thanksgiving. Those, that's not an exhaustive list. Just in Philippians alone, we had other things added like humility, unity. There's, you could add the fruit, any of the fruit, collective fruit of the Spirit to this list. It's not an exhaustive list. But in the face of suffering, as the Philippians are experiencing, and as we occasionally experience as well, what do Christians do? What are we known for? What is our identity? Well, we rejoice despite pain. We show gentleness and compassion despite our enemies. We lay down our anxieties and trust him despite our struggles. We give thanks despite our circumstances and we find peace despite the chaotic, broken world around us. That's what we do. We should be known for these things that we have to offer a hurting world, not the things that make the hurting world hurt more, like condemnation. That's not what we should be known for. We should be known for these things, That's the delicious, salty flavor that the world's been craving without even knowing it. The world wants this salty Christian flavor. And we have it. It's in us. It's near to us at all times. So it's our job to give it to them. It's our job to experience it for ourselves and then share it. That's who we are. That's what we do. If the question is, what are we supposed to be doing anyway? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Rejoicing, showing compassion and gentleness, being thankful, demonstrating peace. That's who we are. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all these great blessings that you call us to. And they are very beautiful and they're very good. 
we are so thankful that we get to experience them, that we get to experience joy and peace and thankfulness and that you are a God who hears us and takes away our anxieties and worries. We thank you for your gentleness. We pray that we would take all these things and reflect them back to the world so that you would be glorified. Help us to be marked by these things that we actively do, not just be identified by what we're against or what we condemn. Help us to do your life well so that others can know you and praise you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. She is not a money launderer for Japanese street gangs. Glad we got that straightened out. Salt has a flavor, and we, the church, the salt of the earth, have a flavor as well. And we haven't worshipped Baal in like four days, so we're doing okay.